You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. We're glad you're here. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of Acts in the New Testament, and get ready to study God's Word together in a series we call, We Are All Witnesses, Part 3. Hi, it's great to see you. Welcome. Uh, it's great to be here, Rolling Meadows. It's great to have the rest of you guys join us by video. We wanna get into the Word of God in the next few minutes. Acts chapter 13. If you have a Bible, you'll wanna turn it there. <clears throat> Acts chapter 13. Only three verses today, but three really, really great verses. I don't know if uh, you've spent much time church shopping, but um, it's something that Christians have to get used to, especially if you move to a new location. Um, I know that a lot of us don't like that term, church shopping. It sounds kind of, uh, you know, like beneath, you know, the way we should treat the church and those sorts of things. But I don't know what else to call it. Um, It's it's an important thing to do. You have to find a place where you can connect. You have to find a place where uh, you feel like it could be your home. There are probably people here now in all of our campuses who are, this is your first time, so it's awesome to have you. We hope you find a place that you can, you, you can uh, call home and, and be a really important part of your life, and we hope Harvest would be that. But it's hard. It's hard to figure out um, what you want in a church. <clears throat> I've had the opportunity, of course, because I was involved in some itinerant teaching in some different places. That means I was going from one place to another, to another, to another on different weekends, um, where I was a visiting preacher or whatever, I've had a lot of opportunities to be the new guy at churches, and I've had lots of really interesting experiences in that. I remember actually one time I was, a, I was uh, the newest guy who was there to preach, but nobody knew it at this uh, church plant that was well known for being like one of the friendliest churches around. In fact, that's kind of how they sold themselves. We're like the most hospitable, friendliest churches. You, you come here, everyone will know your name, Right? So they had, their service was actually interesting. They did the music and everything at the beginning, and then they had a halftime, right, where they went and, and like, literally had chips and dip and <laughs> drinks and stuff out in the foyer, and, uh, and then they'd have the sermon afterwards. So I was there for the worship time, and then I went and stood out in the foyer, and I st- stood there for, I had my Coke Zero, as you do, at 9 a.m., and so I was standing there, and they... People passed me by and passed me by and passed me by and nobody came to talk to me for like a good 10 minutes. And it was about 15 minute halftime, right? So finally, this guy came up to me and he said, are you new? And I said, yeah, I am. And he goes, me too. And so <laughs> apparently nobody else had talked to him. So he and I stood there for a while. I thought it was funny when I stood up to preach uh, the, 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 after the halftime uh, people afterwards would say, we hope you find our church really friendly. And I was like, no, no, I didn't, I didn't at all, actually. Uh, first time I came to Harvest was I visited, we used to, some friends of I, mine and I, we would go to conferences, and whenever we were in a city where there were conferences, we would stay the weekend, and we'd go to like four churches on the weekend. And we came to Harvest, actually, at, at the nine o'clock service on a Sunday morning. It was just after, though, they had a... Um, they had a shooting, I think, in a church in South Carolina or something like that. And so uh, there were armed guards everywhere. And we walked in, and we were, of course, 30 minutes early, <clears throat> which apparently made the armed guards very nervous because, I mean, who would come 30 minutes early except someone who was a crazy person? 
So me and the three or four guys I was with were wandering around in the hallways just looking at different things and how the structures work and I was followed by an armed guard the whole time. Like he finally came up to me and said, can I help you? And I said, oh, we're just here from Canada and he said, uh-huh, and then he started frisking me. He didn't actually frisk me. But I went to Dallas one time, uh, Dallas, Texas, and uh, we went to a church that we'd heard really great things about and... Um, the people who we met when we first walked in, they said, you are gonna love this church. It's the best church that we've ever been to. It's amazing. Oh, the guy who preaches here is so engaging and so exciting. You're gonna love this, right? So, oh, cool. So anyway, we start in on the service and uh, finally the guy gets up to preach and uh, he went an hour, uh, really engaging guy, but he went, he went an hour and uh, about 20 minutes into the sermon, I noticed it was like oddly quiet around me with my friends and the two people who were sitting behind us who were like the real advocates of the church. So I turned and looked back. These two people are like totally asleep. They're like almost snoring, leaning, they were young, young parents. So this was nap time, I guess, at the great preacher. Don't you do this. Don't you do this. My friends were sitting next to me and they were asleep. My friend Kyle, who works here at Harvest now, he was sitting next to me, and I said, dude, wake up. And he's like, no, I'm just resting my eyes. I'm just resting my eyes. It's hard, right? You have to determine when you're looking for a church, what's, like, what's important to you? What kind of things are you looking for? Are you looking for uh, great parking? Some people, it gets down to that, right? Are you looking for great children's ministry? Are you looking for a... An engaging sermon? Are you looking for music of a particular variety? Are you looking for friendliness? Are you looking for, you know, a cafe? What are you looking for? I actually think the Bible should form a lot of the things you're looking for in a great church. I, the Bible actually describes some really great churches. Book of Acts, in particular, goes out of its way to try to point out, you know, like, here's some really healthy churches. The first one is when the church in Jerusalem was meeting together and the in Acts chapter four, and they were, you know, they had nothing, in, had everything in common, it says. There's nobody who was, had any want because one person would share what they had with somebody else. I mean, that's a cool thing to look for in a church, I would think. That kind of generosity and commitment to the community. In, in Acts 13, what you get is Luke, who wrote Acts, Kind of holding up the church in Syrian Antioch as like, hey, if you want to see a really cool church, check this one out. And he does it in only three, three little verses. If you didn't know what he was doing, you would just run right by the passage. And if you didn't know the history of the church in Syrian Antioch, you, you probably wouldn't make much of it. But you, you, everyone needs to know this, that every single Gentile church in the entire world draws its lineage back to Syrian Antioch. By Gentile, I mean all of them outside of Israel. All of them all draw their line back to Syrian Antioch. Like if there were no Syrian Antioch missionary sending church, there would have been no mission. We wouldn't be here. So if you want to talk about an influential church, probably this one and the early church in Jerusalem, the two most influential churches in the history of the Christian church. So Luke, you can understand why he holds it up and says, yeah, this is a pretty cool one. But what, what makes it cool? Like how do you become that influential a church that you affect the history of Christendom? 
What's great about this church? How do you be a missionary church that influences the world? What does that look like? Well, I've got, I've got three things I wanna point out here in these three, three little verses. That there's three kind of uh, characteristics of this church that you'll notice. One of them is they had a broad leadership. Second, they had spiritual expectancy. And then finally, they had sacrificial mission. They were committed to a sacrificial mission. Broad leadership, spiritual expectancy, and sacrificial mission. Let's look at the first of those. They had a broad leadership. Um, look with me at verse one of Acts 13. Now, there were in the church at Antioch. Now, uh, we are, there were two Antiochs in the ancient world. There was one called Pisidian Antioch, and there was one called Syrian Antioch. This one is actually Syrian Antioch, and I know that Everyone loves a good map. Those are the things. When the sermon gets boring and you carry your Bible, that's why you should carry a Bible with you because when the sermon gets boring, you can look at the maps at the back. Amen? Okay, anyway. So this is one of the maps you'd probably find at the back of your Bible. Uh, what I need to show you is that this is where Jerusalem is down here and this is where Syrian Antioch is here. This is about 300 miles between the two. So a ways, a way. They didn't have planes or anything like that. So like in the ancient world, this is actually a pretty good distance. So wait, they had, uh, they had, you know, they had to do with each other, Jerusalem and Syria, Antioch. But Antioch itself, actually, this town was um, the third city of the Roman Empire, which was the biggest empire in the world. So there was Rome and then Alexandria and then Antioch. So what is our third city in the United States? Is it us? It might be us. We want to call ourselves Second City because Los Angeles can just get lost, right? But we're kind of the third city, third largest city in the United States. And just like Antioch, we have the same kind of thing going on here where we have an amazing airport and all the roads sort of cross through Chicago, don't they? Like, it's not hard to get to. That's why the businesses want to, wanted to be here for lots of years that they could... You know, fly people in, fly people out really easily. They have conferences here a lot. They can fly people in, fly people out really easily. Syrian Antioch was like that. They had roadway system that went right through them. So it was a huge city, really diverse city, just like Chicago is. People from all over the known world lived in Antioch. It was a really segregated city. People would wall themselves off from other groups like that. But this is a Chicago kind of city, is what we're talking about. This church was kind of like any church, like us, in Chicago. They were in the church in Antioch. They were prophets and teachers. Now, the guys that he lists here are going to be people that might have been both. We, we don't know. I don't know if uh, this guy, Simeon, right here, was uh, both prophet and teacher. But the idea is that the church was being led by this group of Prophets and teachers. The teachers, of course, were the people who were teaching the apostolic doctrine, right? It was being handed down by Paul and by uh, Peter and by, you know, all the apostles who were given it by Jesus. So the sound doctrine was being taught there. And the prophets were people who actually were actively involved in both encouraging people in the church, right? Admonishing them, hey, live in light of this sort of thing. Applying that doctrine to your life and also people who from time to time, a guy like Agabus, who was just in the previous chat passage, who would come along and foretell future events. So they had prophets and teachers. 
Who are they? Well, uh, this guy, Barnabas, which we know about. He's a really important guy throughout the beginning of the book of Acts. He's one of the guys who actually was in that church in Jerusalem sharing what he had with other people. He's a friend of, of, uh, of Paul's, big friend of Paul's. They had already gone on a quick mission trip just before this to take some money to the Jerusalem church to try to care for them. So, so the church Antioch was like, we want to make sure you guys are taken care of so they carry some money down there. Simeon, who is called, this word is nier, it's the way that you pronounce it in, in Greek. It means black, though. Si- Simeon, who is called nier, uh, everyone in the ancient world, of course, in this part of the world, this Mediterranean, uh, had darker skin. Like Jesus was a darker-skinned man. But if you have a nickname and your nickname is black, that means you're pretty dark, <laughs> And likely means that he was from the African, the African continent. And just like now, in many cases, uh, African people were not treated always with the same kind of respect that they should have received. So you have Simeon, who was called Nier, and Lu- Lucius of Cyrene, which is actually in modern-day Libya. It's on the north part of uh, North Africa. Manaean who was, see this word here, this phrase, lifelong friend. The Greek word here actually means he's like a foster brother. That doesn't mean he was literally a foster brother, but he was so close to Herod the Tetrarch that we could call him, he's there like brothers. Who's the most rich and important person you know? I mean, other than me. Who's the most rich and important person you know? I'm sure you've told people about your rich and important friend that you grew up with before. Yes, have you not? Sat at a party before? And everyone's talking about, well, one day I met Brad Pitt. And you're like, I'm friends with Donald Trump. I'm friends with Joe. Like, you, you and me, I knew a president. I grew up with him. That's basically who this guy is. He's the guy who grew up with the king. And you know that uh, king's kids usually don't hang out with the poor people. Yeah? The king's kids hang out with people on the same socioeconomic spectrum as they are. So Manan, this guy, whoo, wealthy, important family. And then you had Saul. Guy got knocked off his horse in Acts 9. He's become an apostle to the Gentiles. He and Barnabas are the ones who've been teaching a lot in this, in this church. Here's what's interesting about this. Oop, I lost my little thing. What's interesting about this, if you end up dropping, if you end up drawing the ancient world, you will notice uh, this Mediterranean basin is what they call it. It's like the Mediterranean Sea goes around. And on one side of it is, is Israel. And if you locate on, on the map every one of these different folks, you'll notice that way down south is, uh, is this guy from Nier, Simeon. And then just above him on the Mediterranean Sea is the guy who is from, uh, who, who is from uh, Cyrene, Lucius. And then over in, in Israel itself, you have Manan, who is the friend of the king. And then you have from Cyprus, which is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, you have, you have Barnabas. And then up north, you've got Saul, who's from Tarsus. Listen, that, if I drew a picture of that, that would be the entire Roman world. And they're from everywhere. And from every social class. 
If you went and sat down with this group of brothers leading this church, you would have sat down at their elder meeting and looked around the room and been like, man, you guys are from all over the place. So many different cultures represented. This is really important to notice. Because you know, Luke doesn't need to add these little phrases, you know that? He doesn't need to add who is called Nier. He didn't need to say that. So scholars and commentators who come to this passage are like, why is he adding these little descriptors? And the reason why he's adding the descriptors is so that you and I can notice how broad and diverse this group is. Luke's like saying, isn't that amazing? You have five guys from all over the known world. And they're all leading this church together in this cosmopolitan city. And the reason he does it is because he wants people like you and me to know that one great thing about the church in Antioch was its broad and diverse leadership. Broad and diverse leadership. When I say broad, what I mean is uh, plural. Like more than one. When I say diverse, I mean like from all over the place. That's the model in the early church of one of the most healthy mission-sending churches ever was broad and diverse. You know why it's important to have broad leadership, right? Like more than one. Um, I was, in about 2013, I think, there was, a, there was a coloring book, actually. It was published online from a church. And in the coloring book that was published online, uh, it was from a mega church here in the United States, and on the coloring book, there was one page where the little kids would go into Sunday school and they'd have to color the, the page. And it wasn't a Bible story, it was a picture of their pastor. And on the top, it says, we're committed to vision. And then under it, it had this phrase, we will submit to the visionary. We are committed to the visionary. So all the little kids were like coloring this in and the idea that they were supposed to get in Sunday school that day was basically that if you wanna know something really important about this church is that our pastor is a visionary and you better get on board. So what happens if you end up having a church like that? Okay, so like with, with a focus on a single leader. Well, um, I'll give you an example. Uh, I was... Actually, first time I came to Chicago was when I, was, I went to a conference and we were gonna go into the city from O'Hare, so we got on the train. And I was riding actually some good friends from the Seattle area. And me and some folks that I had from Canada were all there and these guys from Seattle area were there and a few others from other places. Anyway, I was sitting there and the guys were starting to talk about, guys I was talking to, I'd known for years because I grew up there. They are all attending this church there and he, and they were talking about how important it is to listen to Pastor So-and-so. Pastor So-and-so. It's got to be Pastor So-and-so. Like every phrase, no kidding, every phrase was like, you know, Pastor So-and-so says, and Pastor So-and-so says. And we were making, I was making jokes like, yeah, dude, we should go out and do this in Chicago. Well, I don't know if Pastor So-and-so would like that. I don't know if Pastor So-and-so is like that. I was like, you don't need to tell him. No, 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 Pastor So-and-so. He's, you know, Pastor So-and-so. He's got this Pastor So-and-so. Have you met Pastor So-and-so? No, you should meet Pastor Sontal. He's amazing. Anyway, the guys get off the train. We say goodbye. We'll see you later. Anyway, one of the guys I was with from Canada, as soon as they get off, leans over to me and goes, dude, they're a cult. I was like, yeah, it's hard to, hard to dismiss that. <laughs> Pastor so-and-so, of course, you will know that 
years later, Pastor so-and-so did some really horrible so-and-sos. So you have this focused individual leader who everybody thinks super highly of, above all others, and everyone starts to talk about him like he's the most important thing going. And so then what happens after that? Well, uh, John Howard Yoder happens. John Howard Yoder was a Mennonite theologian, right? Mennonite, pacifist, love, acceptance, heavy focus on community, taught at Notre Dame until the day he died in the 1990s. Everybody thought really highly of John Howard Yoder. Of course, after his death, they ended up finding out that he had some really interesting experiments in community life. That's the way they talked about it. You say, well, what kind of interesting experiments in community life? Well, one of them he called non-genital affective relationships. Well, what is that? Well, it's basically when I, the pastor, invite you into my uh, office and you undress and I undress and we look at each other because we're, we're on a cutting edge. He said it was a cutting edge of ministry. All right, John. The New York Times did a piece on this in 2013. They said we are on the cutting. They quoted him. He would say to these women he would mostly invite into his office, he would say, we are on the cutting edge. We are developing new models for the church. Sorry, this is just crazy, right? We are part of this grand, noble experiment. The Christian church will be indebted to us for years to come. No, we really aren't. We're not indebted to you at all. But how does he get there? Uh, I just told you how he gets there. He becomes like the guru leader. How did he get become the guru leader? Well, he was the only guy. Whoever taught, whoever spoke, whoever led, he was the guy. And that's what happens when you let there be just one guy. You know the things I really appreciate about Harvest and some of the leaders here? I really appreciate that uh, they, a lot of the other leaders have mixed feelings about me. They do. You can see in their faces, too. They're kind of like, I'm, it's great having you here, Jeff, but um, how did you get here? You're kind of a doofus. Like, they, they, they know my weaknesses. They know the challenges that they have. They know the places where I'm not really good at things. Sometimes they're like, you know what? Why don't you just let us take care of this? They know that once they start talking about logistics and details, man, I'm off in la-la land thinking about the beach somewhere. And they know that. They know that I need other people around me to do this. I actually have been called in the past, I've been told that I need a sober second thought because apparently I'm drunk all the time. You know, Jeff, you know, you kind of act drunk when you make decisions, so we're gonna give you the sober guy to go with you. Okay, yeah, probably, probably. And that's why you have a team of people. It's not just that. I mean, the Bible teaches you to have a team of people. Uh, Paul, when he writes to Titus, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. This, Titus, is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. What does that look like? Well, you're going to appoint what? Elders in every town. Elders. Not just one. You're going to get more than one. Because if you have more than one, then the one person can't dominate the entire thing and ruin it all. And isn't the Christian church basically littered with churches that have been devastated by just 
not listening to the plural. So we need to have um, broad leadership like this. Some people ask me why it is that I don't preach more. I get like, I preach about 33, 34 times of the year. Uh, and I'll tell you right now, the reason that I limit my preaching at the church is uh, one, so I don't go insane. And second, because the church is healthier when they get a dose of Tommy Crates. Okay? The, the church is healthier when they get some Jeff Thompson thrown into the mix. The church is healthier when they get, you know, Ramirez Moody. The, the church is healthier when people, others get to speak. Because I don't want anybody walking out and saying, you know, Pastor Jeff says, Pastor Jeff says, Pastor Jeff says, Pastor Jeff says, Pastor Jeff says. No, we, we, have, we, we, we have a plurality of capable leaders. It's the way the Lord determined it also. But it's also diverse. It, it's got to be diverse. You notice with, the, with Paul, look, you've got guys from all over the place. If you were an alien and you came down from, you know, if, or if an alien came down from, you know, the heavens, Blorg or whatever, and he comes down and the first thing he does is visit elder boards because, you know, the mysteries of the universe are going to be solved at the elder meetings. <laughs> so he comes down and he visits elder boards of local churches. And after he does this about 10 different churches and he walks away, we came and we could interview Blorg and he said, what did you notice? Especially about the socioeconomic status of those on the elder board. What do you think he'd say? Rich or poor? You, you, look, come, you know the answer, right? You know the answer. The way you get on the elder board of most churches, in leadership of most churches, you have a successful business. Because somehow it proves to everybody else that you can make money. It doesn't matter if your parents had the money. It doesn't matter if you, or you know, had a silver spoon in your mouth your entire life. It doesn't matter. You got money, you're a success, we're putting you on the elder board. And that's the way it is all, all over the place. Very few poor people. Usually going to an elder board, it's not just the poor that are absent, it's usually people of other ethnicities are absent. Look around for a while, you know, there's a lot of white in here. Especially in churches of our, of our variety. And yet, isn't it crazy, in the early, early church here, you have Manan, the buddy of the king. He grew up with him. And you've got Simeon, the guy they called Nier, a black-skinned African on the lower socioeconomics you know, spectrum. And then you've got a guy at the very top, and they don't look alike. I find that remarkable. Ajith Fernando is the name of a, he's a pastor actually in Sri Lanka. He's also the, he, he's also a commentator on the book of Acts. And so when he gets to this section of Acts, he actually told a story in his commentary. I want to read it to you. He said, it's sad but true that in many churches, most leaders and board members are rich and educated, even though there may be many poor members in those churches. We need to do some serious thinking about the organizational culture that characterizes our groups. Those who meet the biblical criteria for leadership like holiness and godliness should be able to comfort comfortably to become leaders even though they may not meet worldly criteria like a big bank account. When our ministry in Sri Lanka, he writes, 
began to work with the poor, we decided we would work hard toward fostering ownership and leadership from among the poor. We had to make some important adjustments in order to do this. Here in Sri Lanka, the poor usually speak only the national languages, not English. In fact, in some circles, speaking in English is referred to wielding the sword. For it cuts off those who don't speak English. On the other side, rich and middle class people often joke about those who are not good in English. They joke that they murder the queen with their broken English. Thus, we gave new importance to the national languages and spoke little or no English when we were among those who did speak it. Or sorry, who did not speak it. We wanted to avoid things that alienated them or reminded them of the sinful class difference. We knew that a key to ownership is financial contribution, so we began to urge the poor to support our work financially. To encourage this, we decided not to publicize large gifts. For that would give the poor a message that their gifts were less important. We sought to foster the Jesus widow's mighty might approach to giving from the poor. So that the poor would realize that their contributions were significant, just as they truly are. Gradually, leaders began to emerge from among the poor. Adjustments then had to be made at the leaders' meetings. Formerly, all the leaders spoke English. Now, with people speaking three different languages, extra time had to be given for translation. Sometimes, the leaders' meetings were held in Tamil, a language I do not speak. And I, have to, I had to have someone seated next to me, quietly translating what was being said. With people from poor backgrounds and the leadership, our effectiveness in evangelism among the poor increased markedly. They had wisdom about these matters that the others did not. We began to appreciate and enjoy new types of humor. We were challenged by new models of godliness. We were challenged by the faith of illiterates who were unencumbered by our debilitating sophistication. It was no sacrifice to change our customs for the enrichment that came as a result has been immeasurable. Look, it's always harder to have different people around. It is, it's always harder, but the outcome is immeasurably great. Great churches have a broad leadership. Second, this church, this great churches have a spiritual expectancy. This church in, in Syrian Antioch, that's, that's what they had. Uh, There's no other way to actually phrase it, I think, than that. They, they expected God to move. They were actually looking for it. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, so they're worshiping the Lord is a reference to probably the gathered community, like what we're doing today. And the way that their church services usually ran is they were always, they usually in a house. People would come in, they would usually share a meal, like a whole, a whole meal together, and they would take the Lord's Supper as part of the whole meal, right? So it wasn't like a cracker, it'd be actually bread. It wasn't 
just juice. It was like a cup of wine. And so they would uh, celebrate and worship the Lord through that. They would always have somebody who was going to teach the apostolic doctrine. So usually somebody who was tied to the apostles or had been appointed by them to actually be a pastor in the church. So a guy like Paul would stand up and he would teach the apostolic doctrine. You would have other people in, in the midst who would be leading psalm singing. And you would have people giving, for lack of a better word, testimony. They would stand up and share what the Lord is doing in their life or they would end up saying, I feel the Spirit prompting me to say this to the congregation, that voice and those things that they said that they felt the Spirit was prompting them would be evaluated by the elders of the church to make sure they were sound. But that's the kind of thing that happens. So they're, just, they're having a worship gathering. And part of it, they're fasting. That's not normal. I mean, obviously, look at me. It's, it's not normal. But fasting you can do for a few things in the Bible. One of them is repentance, right? I mean, I'm so sorrowful to the Lord. Mourning, my wife dies, I, I fast before the Lord. But neither of those seem to fit the context. What this is probably about, they're fasting to hear from God. People do that. When they lay hands on others in the book of Acts, they're like, they fast before they do it. They want to hear from the Lord. Lord, we're going in this direction. You need to stop us. So I'm not eating any food to show you that I really want to hear from you. So they really want to hear from the Lord. And guess what? The Holy Spirit shows up. And the Holy Spirit, he says, probably through a prophet, right? That fits the context. Probably there's prophets. Guy stands up, we don't know who, and the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. It's actually a pretty simple scene. You know, there's different ways that the Holy Spirit actually can communicate uh, his particular will to people. If the Holy Spirit has a particular will, he, he can do it through prophecy, which is what you probably have here. But there are other ways that we find in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit communicates uh, his particular will to people. Uh, sometimes it's through dreams and visions. The Apostle Paul, on one occasion, is having a difficult time figuring out where to go, and finally he has a dream in the middle of the night where a guy from Macedonia said, come, help us. And he's like, woo, do that. Paul himself gets knocked off a horse on his way to Damascus. That's one way the Lord can get your attention. In the Old Testament, he uses a donkey not that you should go and start talking to every donkey around. But the Lord can communicate through like weirdness, that, that stuff that you and I would call weird. The Holy Spirit also communicates, quite honestly, a lot through providence. And by that I mean like how are things working out around you? What opportunities are there immediately in front of you? Can you see how the Holy Spirit has maybe constructed this time of your life? Maybe he's done that for just such a time as this. This is what, how did the first church, how did the early church become uh, missionaries? Well, it was through persecution, providential persecution. They got, pushed, they got pushed out. When Paul gets the vision going to Macedonia, right before it, he's like, the spirit of Jesus stopped me from going into Asia Minor. Uh, that, that's like saying, spirit of Jesus stopped me from going to Wisconsin. How did he do it? I, I don't know, man. Cheese curds. I, something. 
He stopped him somehow from going. Maybe, maybe the road was washed over. But the way that Paul saw the world was that God's involved in everything. And so if I'm unable to get to that location, it must be because God is stopping me from getting there. And this is quite honestly most of the way that our lives turn out. God is always involved in the providential things that are happening around us. But listen, the most important thing that we need to remember is when we say, oh, we're going to hear from the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit chose to speak through the Word of God. Some people have called me before, Jeff, you're a Word guy. I'm a Spirit person, but you're a Word guy. And I, I always want to respond by saying, the Spirit is a Word guy. Right? The, the Word of God is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. It's his very words. He chose to communicate it to us. Are you gonna find out whether or not you should go to Macedonia or somewhere else through the word of God? No, probably not. But it will form a framework, a moral framework to help you make good decisions. You'll become a more discerning person if you end up reading. You'll know the mind of Christ more if you spend your time in the word of God. And every time somebody comes up to you and says, I heard from the Lord, and he says this, the first thing that should go in your mind is, is that consistent with what it is that God says in his word? The point is, though, great churches are eager to hear from the Lord and are eagerly looking for where he's leading in the present moment. I arrived at a church in the South Island of New Zealand. Um, it was really my first post-seminary church gig. I was going to be the teaching pastor at this, at this church, about 250 people. Um, my wife and I went native. Man, we didn't know any Americans, any Canadians. We just knew Kiwis. That's it. It was, it was one of the great experiences of my life. I remember sitting in an elder meeting, though, about six months into it. And I had noticed in my time, six months there, that our church was oddly situated. Our church was in the middle kind of of nowhere. Like it was down this road called Ranzau Road. You drive down the road and on the left-hand side was this old church, which was ours. And immediately across the street, also in the middle of nowhere, like farmland, 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 vineyard, 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 church on the left-hand side of the street, school on the right, like a public school called Ranzau School. Ranzau School had a pool, which is on the Kiwi um, elementary schools. They have pools, but they don't, a lot of them don't have gyms. They don't want gyms, but they, never, they rarely have them. It's usually nice outside. They go outside, but not always. We had one. Anyway, I'm sitting in this elders meeting, and I said, has anybody noticed that there's a, church, uh, a school across the street from the church? And they were like, yeah, so what? Do we have anything to do with this school? Well, not really. So it does, isn't it weird to you that in the, we're in the middle of nowhere and there's a public school and in the providence of God, there's a church right across the street from it. That's the only thing else that's around. And we have a gym and they need one. Is this, guys, no, seriously, have you noticed this? I remember one of the elders going, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it is right. It is right. So we started saying, well, what can we do for this school? They usually have log jams in the time that they would drop kids off to school and stuff. And so what we said is, well, what if we didn't, ended up making a, 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 a loop through our parking lot so they could drop the kids off at school and they could make a massive loop and come back out and we could facilitate a better, you know, turnaround. So we went to the school and asked them. They were like, oh, thank God, you guys are amazing. 
And then my friend who I worked with started saying, I wonder if we did an after-school program. I wonder how many kids would come, like on a, on a Tuesday or a Thursday, or maybe both. So we did. We started in the past. Like 80% of the school started coming to our after-school program. If you went to Hope Community Church today and you walked through the, the, the auditorium, as they call it, the sanctuary there, you would find people who came to that church simply because they were involved in the school. All because we just opened our eyes and recognized what God was doing around us. So what's God doing around us? And yeah, he could, listen, he could in the next minute give somebody a word and say, separate for me, so-and-so and so-and-so. Yes, he could do that. But the Lord is already working, right? He's already been, he's been here before we got here. What is, what is he doing? Well, I could give you a couple of things. Uh, I don't really care too much about your political views. I have my own politics, you have your politics. But regardless of your view of immigration, there are, a lot of immigrants here, yeah? From all over the world. It's almost like they've all been flooded into an area where there's lots of faithful gospel churches. What saddens me in some ways is that, look, we can complain all we want about whether or not they should be here, shouldn't be here, whatever, but what we should be saying is, well, if they're here, the Lord has them here. And if we're here, the Lord has us here. I wonder what we could do. I wonder if there's a way for us to actually have an impact in that community. We have a campus in the middle of the city, steps away from Moody Bible Institute. That's weird. I mean, there's not a lot of churches in the city to begin with, and then we were just right next to them, right near them. I wonder why. What relationships do you have in your life right now? You know, the friend that you have or the neighbor that you have or the person you're getting to know on the basketball team or the whatever, where, like why, why are they there? Isn't it odd that God orchestrated it so that they would actually be there at this particular moment in time? The fact that you and I struggle to say, yeah, I never noticed that, or str struggle and say that I never noticed that is probably indication that we're not seeking the Lord. We're not fasting. We're not asking the Lord and earnestly having spiritual expectancy like they did. But what if we did? What would we see? All right, last one. My favorite one, shortest one, best one. This, this healthy Missionary church had a broad leadership, spiritual expectancy, and then finally they were committed to sacrificial mission. Okay, so here's the passage again. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me, for me, Barnabas and Saul, who? Let's remember who these guys are. They're the ones who were actually for a year preaching and teaching this body of believers in Antioch so that they would become the kind of church that they are now. The key leaders. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting some more and praying, 
they laid their hands on them. In other words, commissioning them, saying, yes, we agree with the Lord. And as a sign of that, we're going to lay our hands on it as a sign that we're setting you apart for his work. And they laid their hands on them. See this language here? They sent them off in, in the Greek. It basically, they kicked them out. <laughs> See ya. Uh, can you imagine being the, the, the other leaders of the church or the church itself? I mean, things in Antioch are going really great. It's here in Antioch. I mean, it's a great church. Things are happening. And they're spiritually expectant and all this sort of stuff. And this Holy Spirit shows up and says, hey, you know the two guys who've been like the key members, the key guys who've been leading this church since its inception? Uh-huh. You know what? I want them. I need you to let them go and I need to take them somewhere else. It would not have surprised me at that moment if the church had said, like so many churches in our world today, if they came and said that to you and you were the leaders of the church and you were just reaching out into your community, and two of your key leaders and the Holy Spirit said, hey, I want those two guys, you would say, no. What are you talking about? I do. Listen to me. If we lose Karen and Joe, do you know how much money they give? Karen and Joe run our kids' ministry. Karen and Joe are everywhere all the time. We have some... Outreach thing on Saturday there. They're teaching on Wednesdays. Joe's preaching sermons. We can't, we can't live without them. And what, we're gonna give them away? It's not like we don't have needs. We have lots of needs. Look at us, we're in the middle of Syrian Antioch. There's lots of stuff we could do right here. No, 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 they need to say, you guys stay right here. You stay right here. If they, honestly, if they said that, I would totally understand it. I would, I'm a pastor, I understand. I spent time with lots of other pastors before and if you came and asked them, if you were a church planner and say, hey, could you spare a few people to you know, get our church planner started? They would say, oh yeah, sure. And then they'd go back to their associate pastor and say, I don't wanna ever see that guy ever again. Get him out of here, you know. He's gonna poach our people. And yet, what did they say? Absolutely. You and I are here today because they said, absolutely, Lord. To sacrificing their very best people for the sake of the mission. At great loss to their own ministry, the church of Syria and Antioch sent away two of their best for the sake of the mission of God. Gospel revival comes through sacrifices of gospel churches. You want revival? You want to see the community reached? You want to see the world reached, influenced with the gospel of Jesus? It will only happen through our sacrifice of our people. Uh, maybe say it. Maybe say it this way. Uh, these are mission statistics from what's called uh, the Joshua Project. They do statistics of the unreached around the world. These are a bit dated, about five years old. So let's, we can start with Canada. Canada has a population of about 34 and a half million people. It's about close to 39 now, but um, Bible-believing Christians, they have about 7.7%. Uh, most of that is in the western part of Canada. If you go into New Brunswick, what they call the Maritime Provinces these days, 
Newfoundland, it's some of the most unreached places in all of North America. It means that if you have a church in your community, they usually don't preach the gospel. All right, uh, let's talk about India. One of the most populous countries in the world, 1.272 million people as of the date where I drew these statistics. The unreached in that. Now, unreached means that they have no gospel witness near them at all. That, that means that if they wanted to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, nobody in their vicinity would either know it or be able to tell them about it. There are 1.184 billion people who don't have any access to the gospel. How about uh, Niger? Niger. They have a population of 18.4 million. 18.1 million are unreached. Or Afghanistan. Um, the population is 32.3 million people, and there are 32.288 unreached. 99.9%, guys, there are 40,000 Christians of all stripes in Afghanistan. That's half of an NFL stadium in the entire country. So I have a hard time reading that and not... I have a hard time reading that and just saying, nah, it's not a big deal, it's... We got our own problems. Have a hard time. So let's pretend for a minute that Harvest Bible Chapel that we were gonna say, yeah, you know what? We're not, that's not good. That's not okay with us. What are we gonna do? Well, I'm gonna tell you uh, the problem is we need workers and we need others. If we're gonna engage in this kind of Mountain climb, we need workers and we need others. And I say we need workers because that's exactly what Jesus said we need. When he sees that massive mountain, do you know what he calls it? He calls it a harvest. Uh, he said to them, Luke 10, 2, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Oh, yeah, there's... 99.9% .9 of Afghanistan doesn't know the gospel, has no access to it. Harvest, that's what he says. Who's gonna go? That's, that's the question. Do you know where we're gonna get those people? Where are you gonna get the people who are gonna go? I was on church planning boards for a very long time. This is a question we've been plagued with over and over again. You know what the answer is? The people who are gonna go are already in the churches. They're you, they're me, they're staff, they're people who already are committed to Jesus in many cases, but we're so focused on holding on to everybody for our own sakes that we won't let them go, we won't push them out. What if we push them out? We need workers and we need others. There is no way that Harvest Bible Chapel on its own is going to be able to address the mountains of unreached people in the world. There's no way. And so that means that you and I better start thinking less about our little boat going into war and more about the armada that we are part of going into war. And if we have people who can actually suit another ship in the armada, we send them there. 
We train them, we send them. We train them, we send them. We train them, we send them till he comes. That's a great church. No, no, that, that, that's a great church. I'll finish with this. My, my friends, Wellington and Dolly Oliach are dear friends. He's, he is a Kenyan. She is a Mennonite from uh, Abbotsford, British Columbia. Met in Africa, got married, moved to Canada. We're there for several years. He, have to, he took a theology class of mine that I was just giving in our local church there. Anyway, I, I have a way of talking. This is where my heart beats. So I talk about this stuff quite a lot. Anyway, he decides one day, unbeknownst to me, that he's going to go and he's gonna train pastors in Uganda. So they're raising money to train pastors in Uganda. Finally, get enough money and they're about to go. And I was like, man, this is the coolest thing. I feel bad, Welly, because you're such an important part of our church. But I gotta tell you, I thank God that this is what you're head, where you're headed and what you're gonna do. And he said, well, it's your fault. I said, what's, what's my fault? It's your fault that, you, that, that I'm leaving. I was like, dude, I didn't, did I do something wrong? He said, no, you did everything right. I could not listen to you anymore in private conversation and from the pulpit and from the theology class and all the places I could not listen anymore to you talking about how we need to be engaged in what the Lord is doing until he comes and that's why we're here and the Lord's placed things in front of us right now and I could only think is I, I know this group in Africa that I've been a part of for years and they want me to come there and I got the training here so I'm just gonna take what I learned here I'm gonna pick it up and I'm gonna train the pastors there. It's your fault that we're going. You kicked us out, he said. And I said, praise God. Listen very closely to me. I wanna kick most of you out of here. Not because you're disliked, not because I want other people. I want you to go for the sake of the kingdom until he comes. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm so thankful for your grace and for your, uh, your commitment to the nations. I pray that you would reform the thinking of our church around your heart. I pray, Father, that you would help us to value the kind of broad leadership, diverse leadership that's put as an example here, Father. I pray that we would be a spiritually expectant people looking all around us for how it is that you're moving, fasting and praying and seeking what you might have for us. And most of all, Father, would you find us sacrificial with our money, with our time, with our futures, with all of it. We are living sacrifices laid upon the altar, for, Father, for you to do with us what you will. Be our vision, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org.